This is Hebrews 9:24 through 28. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm excited to have the opportunity to preach God's word this morning. I want to thank Jenna and the worship team for leading us so well in worship. Praise God for our team. Amen. Amen. Uh, our message this morning is called Two Kinds of People. You've probably heard this expression a lot. It's a common expression. There are two kinds of people in the world. People are always saying that there are two kinds of people in the world. And there's a lot of things that you can say after that. Um, Indira Gandhi famous, famously said, there are two kinds of people, those who do the work and those who take the credit. Try to be in the first group, there's less competition there. <laughs> so there's some wisdom in that. And then C.S. Lewis had one too. He said, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. Love C.S. Lewis. And then, of course, Clint Eastwood <laughs> famously said, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. You dig. <laughs> Name that movie. Anybody know it? Yeah, okay, we got a few movie buffs here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's your homework for tonight to go home and watch that movie if you haven't seen it. Um, for those of you that are more visual learners, I have found a few slides that illustrate this principle of there being two kinds of people in the world. The first, as you can see, is the organized person and the rest of us. Okay, next slide. Um, this is a controversial one. I think this says a lot about a person, how they cut their sandwich. As a kid, I was sort of a sideways person. It's mostly because my mom cut it that way. Then I grew up and became a diagonal person. So I don't know. I probably have to get that analyzed. <laughs> yeah. You never, never trust a person who folds the page. Okay, next. Oh. I'm okay with either. It just depends on your mood, really, you know. Oh. Yeah. If, if somebody only needs one alarm to get up in the morning, I don't know whether to admire you or fear you. <laughs> but, okay, so there is a seemingly endless variety of these binary distinctions that we can make to classify human beings into two opposing groups. 
Um, but of all the distinctions that we could possibly make between people, there is one that stands out being of surpassing eternal importance. The Bible tells us in the passage that we are looking at this morning that there are, in fact, two distinct kinds of people in the world. Those who are eagerly waiting for him and those who are not. We see it in verse 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This passage as a whole actually addresses some quite deep existential questions of the human condition. What happens after we die? Does our soul continue to exist? If so, do we go to a better place or a worse place? And what determines that outcome? All of that is in here. All of those questions are addressed in this passage, particularly in verses 27 and 28. So we're going to be unpacking some of that as we go along this morning. But the bottom line is this. Our eternal destiny is defined by which group we fall into, those who are eagerly waiting for the Lord and those who are not. So obviously, it is of the utmost importance that we understand what it means to be waiting for him. And we're going to examine that phrase together, eagerly waiting. I want to talk about three characteristics of someone who is eagerly waiting for the Lord. I'm going to give you the three characteristics up front so you know where we're going, and then we'll take them one at a time. Three characteristics of someone who is eagerly waiting for the Lord. One, we believe that Jesus is coming. Two, we love that Jesus is coming. And three, we live like Jesus is coming. So let's take those one at a time. Believe that Jesus is coming. Obviously, we have to start there. In order to be eagerly waiting for something, you have to believe that that thing is actually going to happen, that Jesus will come. The second coming of Christ is actually one of the essential non-negotiable doctrines of the Christian faith. Ever since the early days of the church, this has been recognized as one of the pillars of Orthodox Christianity. Believe in the imminent bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's part of uh, the what we believe section on our website and a lot of churches' website. Um, it's part of the historic creeds and confessions of the church. It's part of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, a lot of the things that we have recited together many times here at this church and perhaps... You know, many of you have memorized uh, some or all of these in your uh, Sunday school when you were a kid. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Amen. It's not only in our creeds, it's in the creeds because it comes from God's word. In fact, Jesus himself often spoke clearly of his return, the return of the Son of Man. 
If you read the Gospels, uh, there are many examples of it, uh, particularly if you read the Gospel of Matthew in some of those later chapters. He talks about it again and again. For example, Matthew 24, 30, Jesus said, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Like we sung about uh, just a few moments ago, he's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. They see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus himself made it quite clear that he would come again. And so to reject this doctrine really qualifies as heresy. And this is part of what it means to be eagerly waiting for the Lord. It means to have a sense of expectancy about the imminent return of Christ. We don't know when this is coming. It could be 10 years from now. It could be 10 days from now. It could be 10 minutes from now. We don't know. But we believe that he's coming. You might ask the question, well, what if it's 100 years from now? I won't still be here then. Why does this concern me? Why should I live uh, with any sense of expectancy about that? Well, here's why. The, the, the coming of Christ actually is imminent for us, each of us, in a very real way. Uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning gives us two scenarios in which we will be meeting Christ face to face. You have the verse 28 scenario where Christ comes from where he is in the heavenly realms and meets us here. And you have the verse 27 scenario where we leave where we are and meet him where he is. It says in verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And here's where some of those existential questions come into play. What happens after we die? Uh, this reminds me of a period of time in my life as an adult before I came to know the Lord. This, you know, I mentioned to the kids that uh, I didn't come to know the Lord until I was uh, older. And so I, there was a period of my time in my 20s when I began to explore spiritual truth, and I became uh, sort of uh, spiritually curious and started to explore different uh, philosophies and religious schools of thought. And the idea of reincarnation became very appealing to me, as it is uh, to many people, because it seems in some way like there's something comforting about that. The idea that you would die and be born again and get a chance to kind of live over and uh, go through a series of those to work out your karma or whatever uh, kind of doctrines are associated with that. And so that's an existential question. That's a, that's a possible answer to the existential question, what happens after we die? But the Bible, in different places, but particularly clearly here, makes it very definite and plain that the concept of reincarnation is not compatible with the Christian faith 
That is not what happens after we die. We are not destined to be born and live and die over and over repeatedly. It is appointed for us to die once. We only have to do that once. And after we've died once, we do not cease to exist. Something very significant happens. After we die comes judgment. We find ourselves in the presence of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, as it says in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body. So whether, whether we're alive when Christ returns or we die before he gets here, the result essentially is the same. Each of us has an inescapable appointment with Jesus Christ. We believe that that is coming. We believe that Jesus is coming. Do you believe that? Really believe that? That's the first characteristic of someone who is eagerly waiting for him. But obviously you can't stop there. You can't just believe that he is coming. You have to love that Jesus is coming. Because we're not only waiting for him, we're eagerly waiting for him. That's an important addition. There's, there, there's normal waiting, like when you're at the DMV, and there's 20 people in front of you, and you're like, ah. Oh. And you even start to rethink some of your doctrinal positions and say, maybe there is purgatory. <laughs> I'm atoning for something. But no, that's, that's normal waiting. But eagerly waiting has something more to it. It carries with it a sense of expectation, of anticipation, of looking forward to something. And the thing that we're looking forward to is Jesus himself, seeing him, meeting him, being with him. I'm reminded of a, a person that I knew some years ago. About 10 years ago, I was part of a church that had a campus in Niles, Illinois. And I uh, used to, you know, visit the different campuses of the church and lead worship there. And every time I would go to Niles, there would be this dear woman there named Lois, who was in her uh, late 60s at the time. And just a sweetheart, just a ray of sunshine, always with a smile, and would come and say good morning, and we would sit for a few minutes and just chat and catch up. And I always look forward to visiting for a moment with Lois every time I went out to Niles. But one Sunday, she told me that she had been to the doctor that week and that they had found something in her lungs. Something showed up on the scan, and they were doing some tests. And there was a biopsy, and she was waiting for the results. And she told me in all seriousness that she hoped that they were going to tell her that she had cancer and so that she could go home to be with Jesus. And that right away, you're, you're thinking, well, that's, that's sort of a, a warning sign, right? That's something that like a troubled person, a depressed person, a discouraged person would say. But you should have seen the joy emanating from this woman when she said, Josh, I might get to go home soon. I'm so excited. And... Uh, Even, I think about Lois, she just, she, uh, 
she, this really stuck with me. She was a, a fantastic person. And, and the, the, the test results came back benign, and she was kind of disappointed. <laughs> the next time I saw her, she was like, ah, well, it was nothing. <laughs> you know, I'll never forget that. I think about Lois every now and again because I, I consider her to be a living, walking example of the hope that we have in Christ and, and what it means to love the Lord's returning. So I think about her sometimes, but I hadn't talked to her in at least 10 years. And so last week, I'm working on this message. I decided I'm going to use her as an illustration, and I decide I'll see if I can uh, track down a phone number for Lois and give her a call, see if she's still around, see how she's doing. Oh, she's still around. I found a phone number for her. I gave her a call. She answers the phone. Hello? I said, hello, is this Lois? She said, who's this? I said, it's Josh Caterer. She goes, oh, that name sounds familiar. <laughs> I said, yes, I used to come lead worship at the church campus there in Niles. And she said, oh, yes, Josh Caterer. Oh, forever in a day. How are you doing? <laughs> and right away I'm like, oh, forever in a day. That's a good one. I'm going <laughs> to use that. And it turned out to be a delightful conversation. We talked for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or so. And she's doing fine, although she's legally blind now. She says that uh, I see better with my heart than with my eyes these days. She's 78 years old. She's just as filled with joy as she ever was. And she told me all about the various health scares that she's had over the last 10 years, Sadly, none of which were fatal. <laughs> She's slightly sad every time she gets a clean bill of health. <laughs> Though This woman is amazing. and We're supposed to get together with her for coffee soon. Put that on the calendar. I'm going to call her back. I have to confess that I find Lois both inspiring and convicting. Uh, it's inspiring to see that such joy in the face of death is indeed possible through the glorious hope that we have in Christ. And it's convicting because I, for one, need to be leaning into that joy a little more than I do. I mean, I, I have the same hope that Lois has. I believe the same things that she does. But... She uh, sort of plugs into that hope more than I seem to be able to, particularly when it comes to the thought of dying. This is confession time. I have to tell you that when I think about dying, I tend to get a little distracted by my dread of the uh, pain and suffering that I'm going to have to endure to get to the other side, more so than I am focused on the unspeakable joys that await me on the other side. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I believe that. God help me, and God help us to lay hold of those truths, and that that sense of anticipation and joy and hope might overshadow any fears that we have about suffering and death on an earthly level. That's, that's what Christ has accomplished 
for us. And that is the second characteristic of someone who is eagerly waiting for him. We not only believe that Jesus is coming, we love that he's coming, we long for his return, we delight in the thought of being in his presence. This brings us to the third characteristic, not only believe Jesus is coming and love that he's coming, but to live like Jesus is coming. People who are eagerly waiting for the Lord will be characterized by this basic motivation. We want to live lives that are pleasing to him. It might be helpful to think of it this way, using a kind of a memory tool with three H's, head, heart, and hands. We believe that Jesus is coming. That is something we do with our heads. We love that he's coming with all of our hearts. And to live like he's coming involves what we do with our hands. And if you don't appreciate that sort of alliteration, I don't know what else I can do for you people. That, that's just good communication skills. Right, Todd? All right. Thanks, brother. It's a little cheesy, though. I know. I apologize. Forget this. Just forget the three H's. But the point I'm trying to make is this. If we really believe that Jesus is coming and we genuinely love the promise of meeting him face to face, it will inevitably and naturally work its way out in the things that we do in our actions. It will change our priorities. It will shape our decision-making. It will show up in the way that we interact with people. It would change the way we spend our time and money and energy. We will become people who increasingly want to and try to do things God's way instead of our way. These uh, changes in our behavior are inspired by that sense of anticipation that we have about Christ's return. Because Christ's return sort of puts our earthly life into its proper perspective. We're able to see this life for what it really is, a temporary prelude to the eternal reality of our joyous and glorious unending life with Christ. So if we have that hope, it sets us free from thinking that we have to grasp at earthly things to wring as much pleasure and satisfaction out of the things that we can find here. It sets us free from that so that we can make different choices and live differently in a way that pleases God because in Christ we have a larger context for our lives and context changes everything. It makes me think of people who uh, go to college, which is, uh, you know, relevant to think about that now as, as uh, many people have just graduated from high school and are thinking of going to college. Your time in college is finite. You're there for a limited number of years and then you move on and get on with your real life. But the way a person behaves when they're in college is shaped by their belief about what's going to happen when they get out. It's a context that changes everything. Some people approach college life as if there's no such thing as life after college. <laughs> right? Some of you I can hear uh, know that from personal experience. But hopefully the Lord has... Uh, 
shown up in your life since then. But, but their, their time in college is spent mostly trying to have a good time while you're there, partying, you know, just trying to feel good, hook up with people, chasing these fleeting pleasures, not applying yourselves to, the, to your studies. The person who approaches college life like this is going to have some possibly disastrous, but at least definitely disappointing results. You're not going to do well in college and you're not going to be prepared for what comes next. By contrast, the people who do well in college are the ones who approach it with that sense of context. They see their time in college as a springboard into real life, which begins when you, after you graduate. And it shapes the things that you do and the way you spend your time when you're there. You're not just there to have a good time. Your priority becomes to apply yourself to meeting the expectations set forth by the leadership of the educational institution to which you belong, to excel at the academic requirements placed upon you so that you can graduate with honors. You're looking forward to that. It's a hope that you have. Because you know that if you do that, things will be better for you later. And you will end up actually deriving more satisfaction and fulfillment and joy from life in the long run than the person who squanders their college years partying with no thought for the future. It's that context that changes everything, and that's how it really is for us as Christians as well. Our faith gives us this essential context for our earthly lives. If we're looking forward to meeting Jesus face to face, we understand that our true life actually begins when we graduate, so to speak, from this life into our real life. And that is going to shape the way we live. It's going to shape the way we spend our time and energy. We become people who increasingly try to prepare for that and to do things God's way instead of our way and to be obedient to him. And the way that we achieve that is by knowing this book and applying, making some honest attempt to apply its principles to our lives. So we don't want to be legalistic about that. We realize that that is going to look different for different people because we all have different starting points and different hurdles that we're jumping over, different sins that we're repenting from, different character flaws that we're dealing with. But it is a universal thing. If we truly believe that the Lord is coming and we're looking forward to that, we will be making some effort to grow in our knowledge of the Bible and trying to become increasingly obedient to the principles in it. We don't do it perfectly, we're growing in it. We don't do this to earn our salvation, that's very important, but rather as a response to the salvation that we have freely received by grace through faith in Christ. We don't do this only out of fear of God, fear of displeasing him, but we rather do this out of the joy that is found in drawing near to him. So living by biblical principles removes obstacles from our lives that would keep us from enjoying intimate fellowship with God. And so we, we try to obey God's word because we love him. 
And so not only do we want to experience the joy of his presence, we want other people to experience it as well, right? So part of our motivation is we want to become godlier so that God's glory can be displayed in our lives and people around us can see the reality of Jesus, the light of Christ in us, and be drawn to it and come to know that joy for themselves. So our obedience to Christ is in itself an evangelistic effort. I want to give you a quote from Albert Barnes, who is one of my uh, favorite theologians, an American theologian who lived in the 1800s. And he wrote these words in his commentary on these verses in the book of Hebrews. He said this, The great mass of people are not prepared to meet the Lord. They do not believe that he will return. They do not desire that he should appear. They are not ready for the solemn interview which they will have with him. His appearing now would overwhelm them with surprise and horror. There is nothing in the future which they less expect and desire than the second coming of the Son of God. And in the present state of the world, his appearance would produce almost universal consternation and despair. He wrote that 100 years ago, but I... It's still true, more true today than it was then. He goes on. Let us then live in habitual preparation for his advent. To each of us, he will come soon. To all, he will come suddenly. Whether he come to remove us by death or whether in the clouds of heaven to judge the world, the period is not far distant when we shall see him. Yes, our eyes shall behold the Son of God in his glory. No one begins a week or a day in which there is not the possibility that before its close he may be gazing on the glories of the great Redeemer in the heavens. Brothers and sisters, we need to live with a sense of immediacy about these things, with an unshakable belief in the fact that Jesus is coming soon for each of us. And may we cultivate a love for the promise of his coming and a longing to be in his presence. And with an ever-growing commitment to live in light of his imminent return according to his precepts for the glory of his name and for the salvation of all people. Amen? So there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are eagerly waiting for him and those who are not. We have to ask ourselves, what group do I fall into? If you are here today and you don't quite know how to answer that question, or you're nervous or uncertain about what the answer would be, I implore you, do not leave this building today without getting that cleared up without coming up and talking to me down in front after the service or any of the leaders uh, who will be down here, anybody who's serving communion, talk to somebody about it. We would love uh, to discuss it with you and to pray with you about it.